0: started so thank you all for attending the earthquake science center weekly seminar series if you are new welcome if you'd like to be added to our email distribution group please send us an email seminars are recorded and mostly all talks are posted on the usgs earthquake science center webpage. and closed captioning can be turned on by clicking on the cc icon in the dot 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 more tab at the bottom of the at the top of the page sorry about that Attendees, please mute your mics, turn off your cameras until so the Q and A session at the end of the talk, and submit your questions via the chat at any time. Or you can wait to turn on your camera and ask your questions during the Q and A session, which will again be at the end of the talk. So, announcements for today, November fifteenth, twenty twenty-three. Um, it is Transgender Awareness Week nationwide from the thirteenth of November through the no, through November nineteenth. Um, also. Today is the ESC all hands meeting at 1130, um, precisely in one hour. So see the email from Christina Hearn or check your calendar for the link. There will not be a seminar next week, the 23rd, the day before Thanksgiving, but we will be back on November 30th with Heather Kroon from the California Geological Survey. So be sure to tune into that. Um, this Friday, November 17th, we'll be saying goodbye to our Menlo Park campus after nearly 70 years with the potluck celebration slash wake, uh, please see the email from Victoria Lingenheim for details. And finally, join us on December sixth at one p.m. Uh, to deck the halls of Building 19 for a poster potluck party. Show your show off your recent science and enjoy the, some holiday cheer. But
1: you can also come without
0: a poster. You can also come without a poster. Um, we just would <laughs> like to see your wonderful faces in person. So. With that, I'm
1: going to turn it over to Evan, who's going to introduce our speaker today. Uh, thanks, Curtis. So it's my pleasure to introduce Shua Ma. Uh, Shua is a big player in the dynamic rupture modeling community. Um, I think some of his most significant contributions came where he studies how off-fault uh, inelastic deformation has occurred in dynam- dynamic rupture process. Uh, and part of that might have started when he was a postdoc at Stanford and he would come to Menlo Park to uh, work with Joe Andrews. So there's kind of a connection here with USGS and he's a constant participant in Ruth's Ruth's, uh, SCEC dynamic rupture workshop. So he's kind of deeply ingrained in the community and he's been a professor at uh, San Diego State since 2008, where he was a great PhD advisor for me and uh, has really pioneered the consideration of off fault inelastic deformation in subduction zone settings and the implications for tsunamis. So, I think that's what he will talk about today. So, Shu, I'll pass it off to you. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, Thank you,
2: Evan. Uh, I don't need a very long introduction because I don't have (laughs) uh, much to talk about, uh, me. Um, But thank you all for coming today. Um, I want to start by saying that USGS Menlo Park is a very special place to me. Because like Evan said, I worked uh, with uh, a very important mentor. uh, In 2007, 2008 at uh, USGS Menlo Park. Um, And um, the work I did back then laid the foundation to much of what I'm doing right now, so I always miss the time. uh, Back then. I will talk more about it uh, in the end, so hope you guys can stay uh, until the end. So uh, very happy to be back after 15 years, uh, but would like to. um, Work more with the young folks um, because there are many uh, new uh, young folks at USGS. Would love to visit you guys uh, in person. Um, Okay, so. I want to talk about a serious topic today, uh, that is, uh, what produced the devastating uh, uh, 2011 tsunami. Um, as you see in this photo, um, I want to talk about uh, a minimalist dynamic rupture model for the 2011 Tohoku Oki earthquake. Uh, with wet plasticity. So, I want to emphasize the word minimalist because this is not, uh, I don't claim this is a complete model, but it's rather a very simple model that can capture some essential features of this earthquake and the tsunami. So, first of all, I want to thank my uh, friends uh, in Japan, Tasuya Kubota and Tasuhiko Saito, for their help and uh, many good discussions during the course of this work. Um, the model I'm talking about today is directly based on the kinematic model they did. Um, I also want to thank them for hosting my sabbatical visit uh, in the last spring of this year. Uh, also, I want to thank my student Du for her help uh, on this work uh very importantly i want to thank uh, the nsf for giving me the support during the last uh, you know 10 10 years 12 years you can see uh, the three major grants i received from the usgs uh, from the nsf are all uh, on tsunami generation and if you look at the first uh an sf grant i received you know the title is the role of sediments in rupture dynamics of tsunami earthquakes and tsunami generation and you can see the start date is february 15 2011. this was actually before the tohoku earthquake um so the the concept of wedge plasticity was developed during the first very first project and the wedge plasticity is found to be very important in the 2011 tohoku earthquake and tsunami that's what i'm going to talk about today so very grateful to the generous support of nsf Um, many of you have seen this photo i'm sure but uh, the name of the place is called miyako I really wanted to visit uh, this place and many other places devastated by the 2011 tsunami. So during this sabbatical in May um, and June, um, after spending a few days in Tohoku University in Sendai, Sendai here, and the, Miyako is actually right here. Just want to show you where it is. It's about 150, 160 miles northeast of Sandai. So I spent four nights in Miyako and went to several places like Noda. Uh, You guys can see this is a photo in front of a tsunami monument and I don't have a big smile on my face and you guys can understand why. Um, this is a photo uh, in Chiki uh, fishing port. OK, you can see the actual run up here is about 32 meters. Um, so in 2016, on my first battle call, I went to a place called Onagawa, and this is uh, near the southern tip of the this coast. You know, this coast is called San Rico Coast. So the largest tsunami heights, the extreme run-up were observed along the San Rico coast. And this is the coast I will talk about uh, you know a few times in this in this talk. Um the the other reason that you know I you know i kind of look kind of uh, depressed is that i was deeply concerned that our scientific community misinterpreted the tsunami the physics of tsunami generation in this uh, event so let's talk about the physics of tsunami generation in this event i think after 12 years of work extensive work about this earthquake and tsunami there seems a general consensus that the 2011 Tohoku tsunami was generated by large shallow slip, because all the models all the models are elastic dislocation models. So the theory of this dislo- elastic dislocation um, tells us the uplift is proportional is roughly a slip times sine dip. So, in order to get uplift, you need large slip. Also, if you hold the uplift the same, if the dip is shallower, you need large. Also, the shallow dip will lead to large slip. But there's a problem with this uh, hypothesis. That is, you know, the large shallow slip on a, on a shallow dipping fault You can see this is a cross-section of Japan Trench with no vertical exaggeration from this paper. So you see how shallow the dip is. You know the large shallow slip will lead to nearly horizontal displacement. And horizontal displacement is inefficient to generate tsunami. I'm not saying horizontal uh, displacement does not generate tsunami. Because if you have certain slope, the horizontal displacement does lead to tsunami, but the efficiency is quite low because the angle of this slope is also very shallow. So basically the the slope plus the dip, so it's this angle that controls the efficiency of the tsunami generation. If the angle is very small, then the efficiency is quite low another thing very important thing is if you have a very narrow wedge okay then there's a large stress concentration so if you have weak sediments near the toe you know then the the stress will cause failure so the deformation will not be elastic anymore so you will all you will have inelastic deformation so i'd like to put a question mark here because the elastic des- elastic dislocation theory can fail in shallow subduction zones if you have large stress stress concentration in s- rich sediments, I talk about this uh for about ten years uh more than ten years, and people just ignore me um but the the recent uh Observation in the Japan Trench actually show the evidence of uh, inelastic wedge deformation. Also, show the elastic dislocation theory does not cannot explain the observation in the Northern Japan Trench. So let's let's look at the differential bathymetry observations here. And uh, you know it's well known that you know the profiles of differential bathymetry you know of Miyagi. Um, Miyagi Prefecture, this is Sendai Bay, and this is the J-Fast drilling hole. You know, very large horizontal displacement, over 50 meters occurred at the trench. But there is one key observation about the 2011 Tohoku tsunami, that is, if you look at the tsunami heights, you know, the run-up height, and you can see the run-up height along the San Riku coast is much greater then the run-up height in Sandai Bay, also south of Sandai. And large horizontal displacement, large shallow slip, you know, of Miyake in the central region here cannot explain this observation. You know, also in 2017, uh, there are two profiles in the Northern Japan Trench. And uh, let's just show some details here. And in these two northern profiles, you can see the horizontal displacement is quite small compared to the large horizontal displacement you know, in the south. So the uncertainty of the horizontal displacement is about 20 meters. So you can see the horizontal displacement in the red arrow here, the red numbers here are within the uncertainty. So this shows, the large horizontal displacement was not observed in the Northern Japan Trench, but the very large horizontal displacement was observed in the south. Another thing is very important is the turbidite units. You guys can see the blue circles here are where the turbidites were observed. Turbidites were caused by strong ground motion, large shallow slip, Okay, so this is consistent with the differential bathymetry data where the large horizontal displacement were observed. But you guys can see north in the northern Japan Trench, the blue crosses here shows the turbidite units were not observed. So this is consistent with the differential bathymetry data. So no large horizontal displacement or large shallow slip were observed in the northern Japan Trench. Now the question becomes, without large shallow slip or submarine landslides, what caused the large tsunami along the San Riku coast? So the bathymetry data also ruled out the possibility of large submarine landslides. This is a critical question. So without knowing the answer to this question, we don't know what caused the devastating 2011 Tohoku tsunami. Let's look at some uh, representative slip models for this earthquake. Uh, You know, these are three models from, you know, this review paper, you know, 2021. And you guys can see the large shallow slip were, you know, observed in each of these three models. But the model on the model of geodetic inversion and seismic inversion, you know, they don't have large shallow slip extending to the northern japan trench and these two models cannot explain the large tsunami run up you know along the san rico coast and this is where the noda is this is miyako okay and the model on the right can explain the tsunami data because they have large shallow slip extending to the northern japan trench the shallow slip here is up to 36 meters but this is inconsistent with the differential bathymetry data. Another very important observation in 2011 is at two ocean bottom pressure sensors, TM1, TM2, and the three GPS buoys you know, off the San Rico coast in the north, north part, northern San Rico coast, you know, the data showed a distinctive impulsive signal. And you can see this sharp impulse was observed at these five stations. You know, at a deep voice, you know, deep ocean um, dark station, you know, you can see, you know, this is uh, this, you know, very clear dispersive signal. So in Sataki et al. 2013, you know, they explained the impulsive signal by this very narrow slip up to 36 meters in the Northern Japan Trench. But again, this is inconsistent with the data, with the differential bathymetry data. So although, you know, the model, the elastic dislocation model of Sataki et al. 2013 can explain the You know, tsunami data very well. But uh, this is inconsistent with the important observation of differential bathymetry data. So, another, I think, another more recent model that's, you know, it's well cited by people is this work done by Yamazaki et al. 2018. So, they asked the question whether or not they can. They can come up with a slip model that explains the large tsunami run up along the san rico coast and indeed they came up with this you know slip model you know with large shallow slip again very large shallow slip you know up to 36 meters and they were able to explain the run-up you know just by ignoring the large you know some very high run-up values but they can fit the run-up you know, uh, distribution reasonable well. But again, this is, they ask the wrong question because the the differential bathymetry data shows no large slip in the Northern Japan trench, but they use the large shallow slip in the Northern Japan trench to explain the tsunami data. And the wrong question lead us, you know, a wrong model, in my opinion. If you look at the, the fitting of the, the in, impulsive tsunami at TM1, TM2, the black is the data, the red is the synthetic, and you can see the, their model cannot explain the, tsunami, uh, the impulsive signal very well. So one of the early hypotheses is the, you know, the, the largest run-up was caused by a large submarine landslides, you know, done by Taplin in 2014. Like I said, you know, this hypothesis was ruled out by the differential bathymetry data. Although they can explain this large run-up along the, along the San Rico coast due to landslides, but this model is also ruled out. Last year in 2022, um, Kubota et al. published a kinematic slip model. Um, this model is unique because it's the first time they used, you know, the, the, the waveforms, the tsunami waveforms at seven, you see this green triangle at seven ocean bottom pressure sensors. And this seven ocean bottom Pressure sensors, you know, are very close to the hypocenter. You know, the data, you know, have a tight constraint on the slip distribution. The model again, the model is an elastic dislocation model in a homogeneous half space, but they considered a curved fault, and this is what their slip distribution looks like. And you can see, you know. This is a slip contours 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. So they have large slip over 50 meters up dip from the hypocenter, But they also resolved, you know, you know, slip, you know, less than 30 meters in the northern Japan trench. Okay. And from this slip distribution, they invert, I mean they calculate the stress job distribution on the fault. And they propose, you know, it's a large patch of stress drop, large stress drop up up to about 10 MPA near the hypocenter that drives the Tohoku earthquake rupture. The stress drop near the trench is actually significantly small. And this is more or less consistent with dynamic rupture of a, a shallow dipping fault. So the free surface has a tremendous effect. Um, this is the model that my de- my tohoku model is built on. Um, so the model actually re- produced a remarkable fit to all kinds of data and you guys can see here is the fading of the ocean bottom pressure gauge. You know at the ocean bottom pressure gauge. Uh, the gray is observed. Blue is inverted. The red is calculated. And also you can see a very good fit of the, the GPS buoys and some far-field uh near field wave gauges. Um the data of the the, the fading of the GPS data on land is not as good as the tsunami waveforms. And you can see some under prediction of the subsidence and of the horizontal displacement. Um, but to the sea floor. You know, GPS data was, you know, was fit very well. If you look very carefully, you guys can see at TM1, TM2, the impulsive signal was not pre- fitting very well. So the model actually underpredicts the impulsive signal at TM1, TM2, also at these three GPS boys. Also, another thing very important is the model, the model by Kubota et al, actually showed previous models like Satake et al, Enuma et al, and Yamazaki et al. These three slip distributions cannot explain the seven ocean bottom pressure sensors near the Near the large slip zone, you know, near the hypocenter, You can see the fitting of the blue, this is Elu- Enuma, Satake is in red, the data is in gray, Yamazaki is in green. So all the all these you know well sighted models produced a poor fit to this seven ocean bottom pressure sensor data. Um so we don't have a good model to explain you know both the tsunami data very well, the GPS very well, also consistent with the differential bathymetry data. So I think uh, that's what I'm you know that's what I'm getting right uh, you know right now. Um Another very important uh, observation that accompanies the large tsunami genesis is depletion in high frequency radiation. Hiro Kanamori identified this in 1972, and uh, he, you know, he said if if earthquake can generate large tsunami with depletion in high frequency radiation, these earthquakes are tsunami earthquakes. So in the last 60 years, and we don't understand what's the physics that caused the large tsunami genesis and depletion in high frequency radiation. Also, you know, the observations shows that Tsunami earthquakes are very shallow; they occur in upper fifteen kilometers. This is a frictional stable region or conditional unstable regime, and these earthquakes tend to have slow rupture velocity and or long rupture duration, and they tend to have low energy to moment ratio. And what's the physics for, you know, for all these on, 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 on anomalous observations? we don't we don't quite know um so one of the classic tsunami earthquake was the 1896 san Rico earthquake you know this is shows the the location of the 1896 and you guys can see this is the run-up c- distribution of the 1896 earthquake uh tsunami and you can see the largest run-up is at a place of Liali. Liori, Liori, um, and this is up to 40 meters. And the large run-up was also observed in the northern Japan, in the northern San Riku coast. And you can see the largest run-up are comparable to the 2011 Tohoku tsunami. Why? Why the San Riku coast you know, tends to, you know, tends to have such large tsunami, large tsunami, large tsunami height. And another famous earthquake is an authorized normal faulting earthquake in 1933. It also produced large run up along the Central Coast. Um, the answer I provided to all this important observations, um, you know you know, the in tsunami earthquakes in 2011, Tohoku Earthquake tsunami is inelastic wedge deformation. This is the work, um, you know, done about 10 years ago when Evan was still a student. You know, we published 2D models of inelastic wedge deformation. You know, I showed the inelastic wedge deformation generates tsunami efficiently with diminishing slip on the fault. And you guys can see on the left here shows the elastic model. You know, you see when you have large slip, shallow slip, shown here by red, and it generates, you know, this large horizontal displacement parallel to the fault. I mean, the displacement is parallel to the fault. But if you have inelastic wedge deformation, and you can see you have diminished the slip near the trench, but you produced large uplift. The I'm showing here is the basically the inelastic strain. The inelastic strain here is basically the all fault potency density. So it contributes movement. So basically you can consider there are many point sources, you know, in the wedge due to dynamic failure um, that produced this large uplift. Also, inelastic wedge deformation is a large energy sink. I think this is a well-known mechanical concept. So if it's a large energy sink, this can naturally lead to slow rupture velocity. And you can see this is a time-space plot of slip velocity. You can see the, the slope of the, 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 the rupture velocity here is quite small compared to the elastic case. So, slow rupture velocity, deficiency in high-frequency radiation, and the low energy-to-movement ratio. So, the inelastic wedge deformation can explain the anomalous observations of tsunami earthquakes. And uh, the anomalous, you know, uh, features accompanying uh, the large tsunami generation. I gave a plenary talk at SCEC in 2013, so 10 years ago. My talk was after Fred Chester, who talked about large yellow slip in the Tohoku earthquake and some GFAST uh, drilling, uh, you know, uh, data. Um, after after that talk, uh, after I gave my talk. You know, many people talked to me saying, you know, you showed diminished shallow slip uh, by inlastic wedge deformation, but uh, in the Tohoku earthquake, actually very large shallow slip was observed. Uh, So this is just opposite. And people were very skeptical about this model. And I wasn't, when I Give the presentation. I did not intend to apply this mechanism to Tohoku earthquake. I simply to show my intention was to show this is more efficient to generate tsunami. So I was devastated, you know, after the next two, three years, I did stopped working on tsunami generation because my model was criticized. But then in 2017, the, the observation differential observa- differential bathymetry observation in the northern Japan trench was published by a gemstick in GRL, and they showed the in the northern Japan trench the large shallow slip was not observed. So in 2019, I you know work, by working with uh, Shi Nye, we actually came up with a 3D dynamic rupture model with wedge plasticity. We did this model for a magnitude 8 earthquake, just like 1896 San Rico earthquake. And you can see the, the length is about 200, 240 kilometers. The width of the fault is about 60 kilometers. You know, we consider variation of a, a, a parameter called closeness to failure. So basically, in you know if you have a strong variation of cf so basically if cf is high you can have more in elastic wedge deformation if CF, if cf is low you will have smaller uh, elastic wedge deformation we actually showed if the cf is a high you know in this section of the fault you actually generate uplift efficiently with diminishing slip, just like the 2D model. If the CF is low and the you have very large shallow slip, uh, but the uplift, you know, is lower compared to inelastic, uh, inelastic uplift in the North. You know, we showed this is a mechanism that ex- can explain the 2011 Tohoku earthquake and tsunami you know, consistent with the differential bathymetry data. Also the tsunami height distribution, you know, along the coast. And uh, my student Yue Du took one of the, took one of the elastic wedge deformation from Ma and Nye and actually simulate the tsunami. One thing I need to point out is this, and you guys can see how narrow the uplift is. This is short wavelength inelastic uplift. and this short wavelength inelastic uplift can explain the impulsive tsunami that I showed earlier. So, she actually modeled the run up of the 1896 San Riku earthquake by using a model from Ma and Nye. And you guys can see the red is the model uh, the model results of the run up, and the black is the data. And then you can see the short wavelengths inelastic uplift can, can explain the large run up of the 1896 San Riku tsunami reasonable and remarkably well so the reason is you can see how rugged the San Rico coast is you know if you have a short wavelength tsunami this the short wavelength tsunami will be amplified by the small features of the bathymetry you know topography along the coast so the run up will be will be greatly amplified so it's the short wavelength tsunami, the impulsive tsunami that caused the extreme run up along the cervical coast. And this is the same story that occurs in 2011. So speaking of the short wavelength tsunami, the 2018 Palu tsunami was also short wavelength. Because the 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 inundation distance along the the palu bay i mean around the palu bay was very short you know was about only 400 km uh, 400 meters inland but the run up was over 10 meters that killed over 2000 people um also there is only one tidal station at this point Pentolen. and uh, the station showed very little uplift or subsidence. So it's the short wavelengths within the short wavelengths, you know, tsunami source within the bay that caused the 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 the, the devastation. But you guys can see the co-seismic seafloor displacement deformation at the Palo Bay, you see here by you know Jim at Adolf 2019 they consider a restraining band, you know, underneath the Palu Bay. And you can see the broad uplift at the restraining band is inconsistent with the tidal station at Pantolan. Also on the right, you guys can see, this is a model published by Warwick et al. They argue it's the subsidence. You know, you see the blue is the, the subsidence, it's the 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 broad subsidence due to oblique slip on a sixty five degree dipping fault with a normal component can explain the tsunami but you guys can see the broad subsidence is inconsistent with the the station at the pentoline at at the pentoline station so I point this out to the the authors several times but uh the you know this model is still widely uh, advertised um, at the SCAC meeting. Also, if you if you go to Crescent website, you know Crescent uh, website, you can see the model like this is still shown on the website. So I'm a little bit uh, surprised. Uh, because the the model is inconsistent with the observation, but uh, people are still showing this. Um, I know the authors were you know advertising were advocating high performance computing, but I think that the the point I want to make here is you know without good physical insights, the high performance, high performance computing can be a disaster. So, how do we explain the large tsunami, the short wavelength tsunami, uh, in a strike-slip earthquake? You know, like the Palu earthquake. So, in 2022, last year, you know, I proposed. In liquid, not Not enough. liquid. Try to finish. I proposed the in-last deformation, the off-fault deformation, at a restraining band. You know, just like the subduction zone, you know, the inelastic uplift can be, you know, short wavelengths, the tsunami genesis is more efficient. So same thing occurs at the risk. If you have a restraining band, in a strike slip setting. As you can see, this is the elastic model. You can see how broad the, the, the uplift is. But if you increase the CF, just like the subduction zone models, you know you can see the deformation is more and more localized. And the uplift is larger and you can see if you have a CF that's you know, 0.95, the peak uplift is about about three times less than more than two times larger than the elastic uh, model. So with inelastic wedge deformation in in you know, a restraining band, compressional step overs, I think this can also generate efficient tsunami in, uh, in a strike slip environment. This can apply to the 2018 Palo tsunami. I know folks at UIGS uh, work on Lacostean paleo seismology. Um, so maybe some paleo tsunami deposits in large lakes, you know, around large lakes, can be due to inelastic deformation. And this mechanism probably has not been considered yet. Um, I think this is an important mechanism um, for tsunami generators in a strike-slip setting. So how do we understand uh, inelastic def- deformation? So just think about you know if you have a piece of rock in a triaxial experiment, you have in this case, sigma one is horizontal, sigma two, sigma three are vertical. If the rock is purely elastic, you won't be able to generate a lot of uplift. The uplift will be dominated by Poisson's ratio. But if the differential stress is large enough to cause Coulomb failure, and you can see the sense of the slip on this coolant fracture is, you know, the large, these two large blocks are pushed outward and these two small blocks are pushed inward. So if the base of the block is fixed, then this is very efficient to produce uplift. So if you understand this experiment, you understand why the efficiency of in deformation is higher than the elastic deformation. And this is seen in the sand layer experiment. You guys can see if you have a sand layer like this, if you have a minor sheet underneath it, if you crank the, the spool to the right to pull the minor sheet to the right, and you can see the sand will deform like this. You know, this type of deformation is inelastic, not elastic. And this is efficient in generating tsunami. And this idea of inelastic deformation uh, producing efficient tsunami is not new. So actually, Sano 2000 and Tanioka Sano 2001 first proposed this concept. And they actually showed. You know, with elastic deformation, actually the slip on the fault is diminished. You don't need very large slip on the fault in order to explain the tsunami data. You can explain the tsunami data very well with diminishing slip. But the model they considered are highly idealized. They considered, you know, uh, the, the sediments as incompressible or with very high Poisson's ratio. You see, the Poisson's ratio is 0.49, and this is a different from the Coulomb material. So, although the model is highly idealized, but they were the first to propose this concept of inelastic inelastic deformation in tsunami genesis. Of course, we know there is a critical uh, Coulomb wedge theory. Um, the Um that Princeton Group pr- proposed in 1983, uh, Tony Darlin, John Sapi, Dan Davis, they proposed the overall mechanics of fold and thrust belts and accretional wedges along compressive plate boundaries is analogous to that of wedge of soil or snow in front of a moving bulldozer. The stress state within the wedge is on the verge of failure everywhere including the basal decomage. So if the stress is very as everywhere on the verge of failure or close to failure, so that means the CF is close to one, then it's easier to cause the inline deformation. So that's something to keep in mind. Another very important uh, observation in my opinion in in the Japan trench is the variation of sediment thickness and you guys can see you know as you go from south to north, and the thickness of the sediments it significantly increases and you see the legend here shows the sediment thickness you see you know in a in a in the south you know all the sediments are subducted you have this elongate low velocity layer. But as you move into the northern Japan trench, you see, you can see actually the, you know, there are a lot of sediments. So the the sediments form this large sedimentary wedge. Um, I'm going to show you a cross section along line six here. And you can see this is what the sedimentary wedge looks like. You see the sediments penetrate deeper than 10 kilometers, and this is about, you know, this is about 40 kilometers wide. So if you go to northern Japan Trench, the thickness and the width of sediments is even greater. And this sediment, large sedimentary wedge, directly face, you know, the San Riku coast. As this is, may not be a coincidence, you know, the San Rico coast hosted the 1896, I mean, I mean uh, the, the, the 1896 San tsunami was so large, because, you know, there are large sediments in the Northern Japan Trench, due to inelastic wedge deformation. Because sediments being weak, so the inelastic def- deformation can occur more easily. So. The idea of the considering the long strike uh, variation of sediment thickness was actually uh, suggested by Dr. Seno. Uh, during my first sabbatical uh, leave in ERI at the University of Tokyo, I was fortunate to meet with Dr. Seno and showed him my 2D models in less wedge deformation. And he was very interested, and he suggested that I look at the long strike variation. And during this time, the second time I uh, visit uh, ERI, and I heard he already passed away. So I would like to thank him because without his suggestion, I wouldn't be able to develop this model for the Tohoku earthquake. So let's look at this uh, the actual model for the Tohoku Earthquake, uh, 2011 Tohoku Tohoku Earthquake. So I basically consider the same data set as Kubota et al. You know, I have the GPS stations on land and I have this, you know, GPS buoy stations offshore. I also use the same ocean bottom pressure sensors in yellow and the seafloor geodesy seafloor gps data in green and the 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 white line here shows the fault plane um and it's about 200 kilometer wide and 600 kilometer long and showing here in yellow is the sediment thickness the fading of the sediment thickness data of sura et al and it's basically the solid yellow line is the the surface trace of the is the surface trace of the backstop, and this dashed yellow line is the the trace of the backstop surface on the plate interface, and you can see the large sediments uh thickness in the northern japan trench so I incorporated the sediment variation along the Japan Trench. Let's uh, take a closer look at all the stations. And um, you see the ocean bottom pressure sensors and seafloor sea GPS stations, GPS buoys. And the orange rectangles right here are uh, the subfaults of the 1896 Rico earthquake. Uh, Basically, a model done by Satagi, two thousand seventeen, and the the magenta curve here shows the coseismic rupture extent uh, done by Kato, I- Rashi, two thousand twelve. So basically, this shows the extent of the cold seismic slip. And the blue boxes here shows the strong ground motion generation area. So basically, these are the sources of the short period radiation the strong motion generation. Um, I'm going to show you two cross sections. One is A-A-Pri that's through the hypercenter, and one is through the Northern Japan Trench through the six sediments. And you guys can see here is the velocity model I used based on Japan velocity integrated velocity structure model, and where you see a large sedimentary wedge in the Northern Japan Trench, but the sedimentary wedge in the south is quite small. So I consider the inelastic wedge deformation mostly in the sedimentary wedge. And because the sediments in the north is thick and the inelastic wedge deformation can produce the tsunami efficiently while causing weak seismic radiation. And the, the shear wave speed is you know hundred uh, 1500 meter per second um, because the GIV SM does not consider the sediment uh, variation along the trench. and you I considered a realistic fall geometry. you know you see the background velocity structure is layered. Um, this model is widely used in strong ground motion long period ground motion simulation in Japan. And I use a rate state friction. Um use a rate state friction, and you can see the dynamic stress change is actually proportional to the uh, normal stress on the fault. I use some standard rate state friction parameters, assuming we not equals uh one micrometer per second, slope velocity one meter per second. Basically from Kubota et al.'s stress drop model, I can infer the initial normal stress. Then I basically, basically modify the initial normal stress on the fault. Um, in the following ways, first, I remove the you know the features. This is not well resolved in Kubota, Kubota et al.'s model uh, by assigning a velocity strengthening region, and I also add a southwest extension of the slip zone, and this is more you know consistent with you know with this figure from the this review paper because they think the large shallow slip also extended to the to the southwest. This is also consistent with the coseismic rupture extent. Um, and this is not in the Kubota et al's model. I also added the strong ground motion area in the dynamic rupture model. Um, some standard rate state friction parameters on the fault. So, everywhere with the stress drop, I assume A minus B is 0.004. Everywhere is velocity strengthening, I assume it's positive 0.004. So, I use a Drucker Prager yield criterion. Uh, this is a formulation directly follows uh, Ivaska et al. 2008. Uh, you have shear stress on the left yield stress on the right the CF is the ratio between shear to the yield Mm -hmm. stress. Um, You know if you if CF is close to one that means the wedge is you know close to failure if CF is small that means the wedge is far from failure. So CF is an important parameter I used. So I allow and basically I'm going to show you uh simulation uh with inelastic wedge deformation that you know um so the inelastic wedge deformation is in the sediments you guys can see showing here i allow the cf to vary from 0.1 from here to 0.9 smoothly so basically the large cf is only in the northern japan trench in the sediment uh, sedimentary wedge. So elsewhere the inelastic deformation is small. So I'm going to show you the slip velocity, shear stress change, and uh, six cross sections showing you the seafloor displacement and the inlastic wedge, in-last wedge deformation. Uh, let me show this to you. Basically, you guys can see um, The rupture is quite smooth, you know. But although the stress drop is heterogeneous on the fault, as the rupture breaks through the trench, it produces very large horizontal displacement because the wedge deformation is almost elastic. But as you can see, there's a large stress drop in the strong motion generation area, localized, But very surprisingly, you can see the rupture propagation in the Northern Japan Trench is very slow. And the slow rupture propagation is caused by the inelastic wedge deformation. And the inelastic wedge deformation produced significant uplift, but with small horizontal displacement. This is in contrast to the large horizontal displacement in the south. So just wanna show you the slip distribution. Um, This is, you can see the largest slip is 75 meters, you know, about 50 kilometers north of the hypercenter. And the slip in the Northern Japan Trench is actually less than 20 meters. This is more or less consistent with the differential bathymetry data. And here I'm showing you the rupture time contours every 10 seconds. And you can count how many contours in the Northern part You can see the rupture velocity here is actually very small. It's only 850 meter per second. So how do we understand this slow rupture propagation in the Northern Japan Trench? And you can can visualize this as a slowly moving bulldozer, okay, pushing sediments in front of it. But so, so the sediments reach a critical state to generate tsunami efficiently while dissipating dissipating energy. So this is why the uh, the rupture velocity can be so small. And this is significantly less than the shear wave speed, 1.5 kilometer per second. Um, And you can see the model predicts the GPS data reasonable well. OK, and the data fit is better than the fitting in, the, in Kubota et al's model. That's because, you know, I consider the strong ground motion generation area, and this can cause subsidence because it's close to the coast. Um, so the fitting is very good. And here I'm showing you a rupture snapshot uh, at 122 seconds you can see the peak slip rate is 1.91 meter per second. If you compare this with an elastic simulation, you can see the slip rate is much higher, 9.54 meter per second. Also the rupture velocity is very high, much higher than the elastic wedge deformation. You see the elastic uh, horizontal displacement this is inconsistent with the differential bathymetry data. So, without inelastic deformation, the, in, the elastic model cannot produce uh, the results consistent with the, with the data in the Northern Japan trench. And this is the slip distribution of elastic distribution rupture time. You can see faster rupture velocity. But, uh, and this is the slip and rupture contour time contours of inelastic deformation. You can see the difference between these two models. The difference is mainly in the Northern Japan trench because the CF is higher. And the elastic model produced almost identical fit to the GPS data. That means GPS data doesn't have good resolution to the slip near the trench. And this is elastic, this is inelastic, this is elastic. Okay. So here I'm comparing the slip distributions at, at this six cross sections. And you can see large, very shallow slip in the in the south, and blue is the elastic. You know, the blue has peak slip at the trench but in elastic deformation in red, you see the peak, up, peak slip is landward from the trench. The slip near the trench is more diminished by the inelastic wedge deformation. And here I'm showing the horizontal displacement. You see the peak horizontal displacement at the trench in the elastic model, but in the inelastic model, you see diminished horizontal displacement. and the deformation profile shown here is more consistent with the differential bathymetry data shown here. You see large horizontal displacement in the south, but without large horizontal displacement, the in nls deformation produced significant uplift. This is consistent with the differential bathymetry data. So in the interest of time, I just want to show you the 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 tsunami results. You know the this shows the simulation of the tsunami waveforms uh, by the inelastic wedge deformation. So the blue is the synthetic, the black is the data. You can see the Inglas deformation can explain the impulsive signal re- really well at TM one, TM two, and these three GPS buoys. OK, and uh, also the fit at other stations are also reasonable well. And this is the fit of the elastic uh, model. You can see the elastic model over predict the amplitude also arrives too early. And this is again. This is the fit of the elastic model. This is the fit of the elastic model. And you can see a dramatic difference between the arrival time, also the amplitude of the impulsive signal. Sure. So, we just we want to summarize.
1: We don't want to you to you, but we're at 11:30, so if you could wrap up in one or two minutes. Okay. Okay. Let okay. me
2: just wrap up. So, a minimum list dynamic rupture model with plasticity and sediment thickness variation can explain the key observations. So the free surface and compliant panning wall with predominantly elastic off-response can explain the large shallow slip at trench without requiring any dynamic weakening mechanisms. The wedge plasticity due to sediments in the Northern Japan trench explain, you know, can explain all these anomalous observations very well. Also I want to see this uh loudly. it's a serious misconception to see that the 2011 Tohoku tsunami was caused by a large shallow slip. Um and this is my last slide. Um uh, I just want to say a few words uh, about Joe. Um uh I work with Joe uh since 2007. And basically between 2000 and 2007 and 2016, this is the last photo of Joe and I. And we were really uh, close and uh, we, you know, after I left the Bay Area in 2008, we just, you know, found each other, found each other at meetings. Joe would travel to the AGU meetings to meet with me for lunch. And um, Joe passed away in. You know, two years ago, I've been thinking what I should do for him. I couldn't write a paper in ESL to uh to to remember him. So after some thoughts, I would de- dedicate the this Tohoku work to Joe. Um I will take the full responsibility if people criticize this model. It has nothing to do with Joe. Um but I miss him. Thank you very much.
0: Um, So we are a little after 1130 for the all hands. Um, If folks need to leave, they should do so. I will stick around for a few quick questions and we'll end maybe in two to three minutes. Anybody have a question online in the room? Um, I'm not seeing any immediately. Um, sure, so I had a question for you. So I was interested in the um, the difference in sediment thickness across the Japan Trench and the origin of that. I was wondering if there's a geomorphic process that leads to the thickening of the sediment, or if it is purely due to the thickening of sediment due to this inelastic process, and if so, is there a difference in friction along the fault that leads to more inelastic deformation within the material as opposed to on the interface itself?
2: Uh, Curtis, I, I'm sorry. I don't know what's the, what's the cause of the sediment uh, thickness variation along the Japan Trench. Uh, so that's basically the results from the reflection survey. I don't know the, the reason behind it.
0: All good. Thank you. Anybody
1: else? Sure, I'll ask one. Sure, really great talk, really interesting. Um, Could we use sediment thickness to start thinking about forecasting uh, tsunami heights elsewhere, say in Cascadia?
2: Yes, I think it's very important. If you have thick sediments, then this elastic deformation can be very important in tsunami genesis, Um, Also, it will cause, you know, weak seismic radiation, so the tsunami early warning can be a big challenge. Wayne, I just had a a quick question and comment. Uh, First of all, I was at the 2013 uh, SCEC meeting and I do not think I was discouraging to <laughs> uh, Thank you, you very made, much. <laughs> kudos to you for, for being persistent uh, about this because um, you made a very, very convincing case to me today. And uh, I think
1: we've learned a lot about uh, tsunami genesis for large earthquakes. Uh, I, I just had one quick question. Uh, your CF parameter is kind of an
2: empirical uh, adjustment parameter. Uh, and my guess is that the CF parameter kind of trades off with the with the slip uh, with the shallow slip. Um, could you say a little bit more about that and uh, whether there is some material property that CF
1: represents that uh, well, can be observed?
2: So CF C- in in this model is closeness to failure. So. Basically, it's a measure of how close the stress state is to the yield stress. So it depends on the stress parameter like cohesion, internal friction. But we don't know those parameters very well. Also, we don't know the stress state very well within the sediments, let's say. So it's just a a simple way of characterizing. how close the material is to failure. So if CF is high, you can have high, uh, you have more inelastic def- deformation. If inelastic deformation occurs, then you have diminished uh, shallow slip. So it's just a simple way of uh, incorporating inelastic wedge deformation because we don't know the strength parameters very well. Thank you. You know, for weak sediments, you can have high CF, you know, that's what I did for the model. So, yeah, I would love to have used more realistic strength parameters, but uh, it's a challenge.
0: All right, Shuo, in the interest of time on our end, I think we'll have to call it there. Um, But let's thank our speaker again for a great talk.
2: Thank you very much.